I'm going to invite you uh, now, if you will, to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. You'll find it after the book of Psalms, and then Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes, and we are turning tonight to the third chapter, Ecclesiastes 3, and I want to begin reading to you in verse 1. Solomon writes, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time... For peace. Now you uh, may be excused if you thought those words originated with the rock song in the 1960s. Uh, they didn't. They actually, uh, famous though that song is, came from the Old Testament uh, and from the pen of King Solomon. And these words, uh, you may realize, also are a bit of an anomaly within this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, a few weeks ago in the bulletin and online, I wrote about the book of Ecclesiastes as one of the strangest books in all the Bible. This book is actually, if you read it from front to back, filled with peth- pessimism and with humanism and with skepticism and with worldly wisdom of all the worst kinds. So often, Ecclesiastes sounds like anything but what we'd expect the Bible to sound like. For instance, chapter 1, verse 8 All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Or chapter 113, it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Chapter 1 verse 18, in much wisdom there's much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. This doesn't sound like the Bible, does it? The hope of the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 19, there is no advantage, Solomon writes, for man over beast. All go to the same place. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? And then chapter 9, verse 11, he says, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. And then perhaps the most famous of all Solomon's phrases of despair and pointlessness, he says famously, vanity of vanities, all is vanity or all is meaningless. And I say again, that doesn't sound like the Bible, does it? If someone just said to you, everything is meaningless, 
you wouldn't think that they were quoting the scriptures because we're accustomed to hearing the scriptures give us hope and point us to meaning. We're accustomed to hearing the scriptures say things like, great is your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning. And Solomon seems to say the exact opposite. We're accustomed to, accustomed to hearing the scriptures say things like, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And Solomon says the exact opposite. Everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. It's a strange book. And yet there's a reason that Solomon speaks the way he speaks. He wrote this book of Ecclesiastes from an unusual vantage point. He wrote it from a vantage point that none of the other authors of Scripture wrote from. He wrote it, namely, from the vantage point of what he calls under the sun. Under the sun. Solomon employs that phrase 27 times over the course of this book. And in doing so, he gives us a strong hint as to how the rest of the book should be interpreted. Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes only from the vantage point of what you can see with your own two eyes under the sun. He writes, in other words, as someone who is interpreting life only by what he can see as though there were nothing else out there beyond the sun. No heaven, no eternity, nothing beyond what can be seen with our physical eyes and the world around us. And if we observe life simply from that vantage point, simply by what we can see with our own two eyes then Solomon's words of despair are quite realistic, aren't they? If life is interpreted only based on what can be observed under the sun, if what is on the other side of the sun is taken out of the equation, then Ecclesiastes, with all of its hopelessness, is a perfect explanation for our world. Life really is pointless if we view it only from this side of heaven. If there's no heaven and there's no hell... If there's no eternity in which our struggles will finally make sense, if there's no place of reward for deeds that are done in righteousness and no place of torment for acts of sin, well, then, as Solomon says so often in this book, we really all should be overcome with despair. Life is meaningless. And that's precisely how the book unfolds, with pessimism and skepticism. This book is primarily a lesson in how not to view the world. God has given to us an example of what happens to a person when they only view life through secular glasses. But every now and again, though Solomon's book is mostly a book about how not to view the world, every now and again, he comes out with a moment or two of great clarity. Every now and again, Solomon takes off his secular glasses and allows himself to see beyond the sun and he says, when he sees those kinds of things, he says some stuff that actually makes good biblical sense. And this portion that I've read to you, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, it seems to me is one of those places where Solomon is seeing things clearly. There's a reason why the birds recorded that song in 1965. And there's a reason why that song, based on these words, went to number one on the billboard chart. Solomon is saying something here that resonates with the human soul. This time, he's saying something that is not pessimistic, not humanistic, but thoroughly biblical, that resonates with what we see, but that fits with what we know about God. And Solomon says it in some of the most memorable poetry ever written. 
to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time of peace. If you have lived in this world long enough with your eyes open, those rhythms of life that Solomon describes will be very familiar to you. And those rhythms will be filled in many cases with great meaning as you read these words, even with strong emotion at some points and powerful memories. There is a time to give birth, isn't there? Verse 2. And the birth of a child is one of the greatest experiences that a human can have, whether as an aunt or an uncle or a grandmother or a grandfather or father or mother or brother or sister. It's an amazing thing when there is a time to give birth. And yet, there's also a time to die. And we know that fact by powerful experience as well. There's a time, verse 7, to be silent. And there's a time to speak. And one of the greatest quandaries that many of us have is knowing which is which. There's a time to embrace in verse 5. And there's a time to shun embracing. And again, there are many powerful memories and emotions for some of us connected with the idea of embracing or refraining from doing so. And we could work our way through each of these poetic couplets. There are 14 of them saying the same things to ourselves. These words describe my life. These words describe my family. This is the world in which I live. That's why the song was so popular. Whether in little things like the rending and sewing of garments in verse 7 or in big things like times of war and peace, these magnificent verses encapsulate the ebbs and flows that we see constantly in our own circumstances, the ups and the downs, the backs and the forths. And all of this brings me to the first point that needs making from this passage, namely changeableness. Solomon's poem portrays the changeableness of life. The ship of life sails in many sorts of different waters, doesn't it? In the words of the great preacher Charles Simeon, sometimes we sail in the smooth, wide-open seas of the Pacific, and other times we're forced to navigate the Mediterranean with all of its shoals and rocks. Or to put it in our language, sometimes life is like a four-lane highway, smooth and straight, And other times it's like a mountain pass with sheer cliffs on either side of the road. That's one of the things that this great poem has to teach us. Life is so changeable, so variable. There is a time for weeping, and yet there's also a time for laughter. There's mourning in this life, and yet there's also dancing. There's embracing, but there's also the parting of ways. There are times of peace, 
and there are times of war. Life is so changeable, and we are wise if we prepare ourselves for these realities, for the the changeableness of life. But it's our human nature not to prepare ourselves well for these things, isn't it? When things change, we feel like the rug's been pulled out from under us. But Solomon is telling us this is how life is. Sometimes you tear apart, sometimes you sew together. Sometimes you throw stones away, sometimes you gather them. That's just how life is. Things are constantly changing, but we don't handle that well. Some of us are natural pessimists, or perhaps we've just been deeply, deeply wounded by life's trials, such that we can't even fathom in the midst of our mourning that we might ever laugh again. And yet, Solomon says, that's not the way life actually is. There is a time to weep, but there also is a time to laugh. And it's good when we remember that. Others of us are bent in the opposite direction. Forgetting what our sins actually deserve from God, forgetting that there actually are no good people, sometimes we find ourselves unable to fathom why God would, quote, allow bad things to happen to good people. And, of course, there are no shortage of prosperity teachers who make a lot of money by telling us that God won't allow those things to happen to us. But the facts of life are very different from what the televangelists tell us. You don't have to read Ecclesiastes 3 to know that. Life, even the Christian life, is not all health and wealth. No, Solomon says life is changeable. Yes, verse 3, there's a time to heal, and we believe that. There's also a time to kill. There's building up, of course. But there's also, verse 3b, tearing down. God may, in a time in your life, gather stones together to build the house or the job that you always wanted. But there are also times where he may throw those stones away. There's a time when God may plant you into a very good situation. But there's also a time when, for his own wise purposes, he may uproot what he's planted. To everything, both good and bad, there is a season. And there is a time to every purpose under heaven. Life in this sin-cursed world is back and forth. It is up and down. It is changeable. That's one of the points of this poem. And we're wise if we anticipate that it will be so. We're wise if we don't assume that things will always go our way and the boat will always be even keel. We're wise if we prepare for the times of tearing down and uprooting and giving up as loss and so on. That's life in a fallen world. We don't need to be paranoid that something is always going to go wrong, but we do need to be prepared. That's the first thing, a very simple thing that needs saying tonight. Changeableness. Solomon's poem portrays the changeableness of life. But secondly, this poem is about sovereignty. Changeableness, yes, but sovereignty. Solomon's poem highlights the sovereignty of our God. So yes, life in this world is up and down. It can feel, from our vantage point, topsy-turvy, but it's actually not capricious or haphazard. Solomon emphasizes this in verse 1, does he not? Listen to how the New American Standard translates it. There is an appointed time for everything. 
there is an appointed time for everything. In other words, life's changes are not the random fallout of chance. Times of war and peace, times of mourning and dancing, times of birth and death are appointed times, he says. Appointed by whom? Who has the right to appoint these things? Exodus 4, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Or Amos 3, if calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Or in the words of Jesus, most simply of all, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. In other words, all the fluctuations in our lives, whether they be great calamities or something as small as the death of a sparrow or the uprooting of a garden plant here in verse 2, are appointed, and they are appointed, the rest of the scripture tells us, by our Heavenly Father. That doesn't preclude human involvement or responsibility, of course, and we'll come back to our responsibilities in a moment. But ultimately what Solomon is saying in this passage is that times of war and peace, times of searching and giving up is lost, times of weeping and laughing are appointed times. Now, I'm aware that the King James and the ESV and some other translations in verse 1 put it a little differently. Instead of saying there is an appointed time for everything, they render it more poetically, to everything there is a season. A season, But the idea is the same. Who controls the seasons? Well, they're put in place by God, aren't they? Didn't God promise concerning our atmospheric seasons to keep them in rhythm as long as the earth shall last? Genesis 8, 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. You hear that? Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Do you hear the same echo of the way Solomon speaks in this psalm? Solomon speaks in the same kind of way with these couplets, saying these things, gathering stones and throwing away stones, weeping and mourning, and so on. These things are seasons that are appointed by God just like the atmospheric seasons. The circumstantial seasons of our lives are from his hand as well. And if you live long enough in this world, you will experience all the different seasons. There will be times of uprooting, and there will be times of planting. There will be times of keeping and times of throwing away. There will be times to love and times to hate. That's the way God has designed the world. And that's the way he's designed our individuals. The psalmist puts it like this. My times are in your hand. Psalm 31, 15. My times are in your hand. The time to give birth is in your hand. And so is the time to die. The time to mourn is in your hand. And so is the time to dance. The time to search, God, is in your hand, and so is the time to give up is lost. My times, all of the times that are listed here in Ecclesiastes 3, are in your hand. This is about sovereignty. Now, let me ask you, where are you on the spectrum tonight? 
what time or season are you currently walking in? For some of us, it may be a time to weep. Others, it may be a time to laugh. For some of you, it may be a time for throwing stones away. For others, gathering them. A time for some of you to embrace. And for others of you, it may be right now a time to refrain from embracing. Where are you at in your life right now? What is the season? What is the time? Whatever time it is, you may be sure that it's God's time. Your times are in his hands and they are, verse 1, appointed times. Your life is not out of control, even if it feels from your side of things like it is. You are not a victim of chance. Solomon says rightly here, there is an appointed time for everything. So life is changeable, but it's not chaotic. Our times are variable, but not by reason of chance. There's an appointed time, God's time, for everything. And God, as one of my friends wrote to me this week, is always on time. And God is always working for the good of those who love him, isn't he? Remember that, whatever time you may be in. Remember that God is always working for your good when it comes to be a time for uprooting or for tearing down. When it's a time for weeping or for giving up as lost, remember God, for your good, appoints the times. God is sovereign. Your times, whatever they may be, are in his wise, gentle, loving, strong hand. So we've said two things so far. Solomon's poem portrays the changeableness of life but it attributes all of life's various and variable seasons not to chance or fortune, but to the sovereign hand of God. But then we need to say something still more. Changeableness, sovereignty, and thirdly, wisdom. Wisdom. Solomon's, Solomon's poem calls for wisdom on our part. It's true that God assigns the seasons for mourning and dancing, for war and for peace, for searching, for giving up the search, and so on. God appoints the times, but we human beings are charged with the task, aren't we, of discerning which time is which. There may be times when a farmer, verse 2, must uproot his crop, And there may be times, verse 3, where he must decide whether he needs to nurse a particular horse back to health or to put it to sleep. And yes, those times are ordained by God, but the farmer must have the wisdom to know which time is which, mustn't he? And the same is true for each one of us. God appoints the various times in our lives, but we need to learn to recognize his appointments and to act accordingly. And I think this is one of the things that we should draw from this poem. We need to learn to live our lives according to God's timing, and to do that requires wisdom. For instance, there's great skill involved in knowing whether to embrace or to refrain from embracing. When a fellow Christian, for instance, is involved in serious sin, There is a time to embrace him, to welcome him into your home, to plead for repentance. But there's also a time, 2 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says to have nothing to do with him so that he will be put to shame. When do you change from one time to the other? 
but to have wisdom, don't you? There's real wisdom required in knowing, verse 2, whether God wants you to uproot from your current job or your current house or your current city, or whether it's time to plant yourself all the more deeply. You need wisdom to figure that out. It's not even easy to tell sometimes whether a given circumstance is a time for mourning or dancing. Witness two very different gatherings last night in Chicago and in Boston. Some mourning, some dancing. The same thing can be said of war and peace and love and hate and all the other couplets in these remarkable verses. To everything there is a season assigned by God, yes, but knowing what season you are in and how to act accordingly requires a great deal of wisdom. How do you decide when your parent is dying what to do about the feeding tubes or the life support or the further treatments and so on there is a time to die verse 2 but how do I know when is that time or next week the elders will be meeting and deacons with us to put together our servant ministry roster and when we do that Uh, Year to year, sometimes it becomes evident that a certain activity is not as effective as it once was or that people aren't as enthused about serving in an area anymore. And occasionally there comes a time where we must tear down instead of building up. But when is that time? Is this the right time or not? Life is filled with these sorts of questions, isn't it? I know that God has my times in his hands but I'm just not sure what time I happen to be in. I don't know whether to search right now or to give up. I don't know whether to keep or to throw away. I don't know whether to fight or to conciliate. What do I do in those times when I don't know what time I'm in? I cry for wisdom. I plead the promise of James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Isn't that a good promise for those times when you're stuck in the middle of one of these couplets and not sure which direction the wind is blowing? I don't doubt some of you are there right now. Some of you have decisions to make in your life right now. Maybe there's a strain in your family and you don't know whether to embrace or to refrain. For some of you, perhaps there's a job decision ahead and you're not sure whether you should plant or uproot. Maybe there's some problem in the life of one of your loved ones and you don't know whether this is a time to be silent or a time to speak. Or maybe it's just something as simple as thinking about your car or your laptop and wondering, verse 6, whether it's a time to keep or a time to throw away. There's all sorts of decisions in our lives where we ought to seek the wisdom of God. So let me just ask you, is there some, some decision, some dilemma in your life? Just for a moment, whatever it is, pull up the file and leave it open on your mental desktop. What's the decision? Can you picture the questions that have been running through your mind? Remember this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously 
and without reproach, and it, wisdom, will be given to him. Ask God. And then remember, too, that God is sovereign, as we said, over these times in your life. These times, even if you're not sure exactly where you are, are appointed by him. And so if you're really trusting him, if you really belong to him, God is not going to let you go off the deep end. He's not going to let you ruin your life with this one decision, no matter how clueless you may feel about what to do. If you belong to God, he's appointing the times in your life, and he will appoint them such that even if you don't know what to do, and even if you make some missteps, he'll still work all things together for your good. Ask him for wisdom and then trust his sovereignty. And then let me say one other thing regarding decision-making in the Christian life. If there really is an appointed time for everything, then you needn't feel guilty when, under God's guidance, you make the decision to uproot or to give birth or to throw away or to speak or to give up as lost or to refrain from embracing or even to dance. Sometimes as Christians, we worry about what others will think or how certain decisions will make other people feel or how certain course of action will play or be perceived. And we should be concerned about those things, obviously. Sometimes God will use other people's influence on us as a part of his giving us wisdom for making right choices. But once we have determined what God would have us do, once we have searched the scriptures and sought God's wisdom and come to God's conclusion, we shouldn't feel bad about going forward with God's plan. There is an appointed time for everything. There is a time to uproot your family, if that's what God calls you to do. There is a time to enact your father's do-not-resuscitate request. There is a time to speak up for what's right. There is a time to keep your distance from those who do wrong. There is a time to tear down things that are no longer useful in a church. There is a time to have another baby or not. And when we've reached God's timing, we mustn't feel guilty about acting on it. To everything, there is an appointed time. So we've said three things. Solomon's poem portrays the changeableness of our lives, but it highlights the sovereignty of God over those changes. And then it calls for wisdom as we make choices about those changes. And now before we finish, I just want to take you in a little bit different direction. This famous poem speaks of changeableness and sovereignty, and it calls for wisdom. But in the fourth place, Solomon's poem anticipates the gospel of Jesus. Solomon's poem anticipates the gospel of Jesus. Having entered our world, Jesus subjected himself to the same sorts of changeableness that mark this poem and that mark our lives, didn't he? He subjected himself to this very set of variations. Now, that wasn't always the case for him, was it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't that what John says in the first chapter of his gospel? In the beginning and from eternity past, Jesus existed and emanated the perfect, unchanging light of God's countenance, being himself very God of very God. And yet... Jesus, eternal, unchangeable God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And when he took on flesh, he took on the changeableness 
of Ecclesiastes 3. Not a changeableness in his nature, but a changeableness in the world in which he took on flesh. Jesus took on this very set of difficulties. Verse 2 shows that plainly enough, does it not? Though Jesus was and is very God of very God, there was for Jesus a time to be born. When the fullness of time came in the little town of Bethlehem, surrounded by shepherds and worshipped by the Magi from the east and announced and praised by angels, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those of us who were born under the law and condemned by it. It's an amazing thing, Christmas, isn't it? God becomes flesh and enters Mary's womb and takes upon himself Verse 2, a time to be born. But then, of course, having taken on our flesh, there was also a time for Jesus to die. A time to be cursed. A time to be spat upon. A time to be beaten and hung on a tree for our sins. So I read Ecclesiastes 3.2. A time to give birth and a time to die. And I think of Jesus who entered that kind of world for me. And I think of Jesus too when I read the last half of verse 7. A time to be silent and a time to speak. What a display of this truth Jesus put on that day before Pontius Pilate when, like a sheep before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. But then what a display he also put on as he hung on the cross a few moments later and spoke spoke seven times, seven of the most precious sentences in the Bible. There's a time to be silent, and there's a time to speak, and we see that in Jesus. And what about the first half of verse 7? A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. When Jesus finished speaking, he breathed his last, and the veil of the temple, one of the most beautiful tapestries ever created, woven thick with blue and scarlet material and golden cherubim interlaced. When Jesus breathed his last, that veil tore in half. There was a time to sew that veil together, and when Jesus died, there was a time to tear it apart to open the way of access into the presence of God. I think of Jesus too when I read verse 5, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. Wasn't that true of Jesus as well? There was a time in Jesus' ministry for his disciples to embrace him, to touch him, to cling to his person, to place their hands in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus, to feel the prints in their side. There was a time to embrace, but there was also a time to refrain from embracing, a time when Jesus said in the Gospel of John it would be better for them that he go away and send them another helper. And we're living in that time, aren't we? We're living in the time where God's people have refrained from being able to embrace the physical presence of Jesus. But though there is a time to refrain from embracing, there will be once more a time to embrace. There will be a time for us to place our hands into the scars and for us to feel his everlasting arms physically 
underneath us. A time to embrace and a time to refrain embracing. And when Jesus comes again, there will be, verse 8, a time for war and a time for peace. When he comes again, he will rule his enemies with a rod of iron and he will make war against them with the sword of his mouth. But for his people, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no end of his government or of peace. So in many ways, it seems to me, these verses describe the world that our Savior entered and the world that he is redeeming. He entered into a changeable world on our behalf. And if that changeableness was true of Jesus, our forerunner, and if God's timing was perfect in his life, then surely we who are the body following the head will also see that God's timing will be perfect for us as well. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven.